Welcome, Seekers of Truth, coming to you from the edge of the known universe, better known as the Granite State, home of Betty and Barney Hill. Through the magic of electronic alchemy, a portal to another dimension has opened. You are about to make a metaphysical connection. This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. On episode 92 of The Metaphysical Connection, we host author Mark Stavich. Mr. Stavich has penned nearly 30 books on various topics within the esoteric and paranormal realm. His latest book is Egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny. Egregores are the autonomous psychic entities that are created by a collective group mind. An egregore can be formed by a small group such as a coven or an entire nation vibrating at a synchronous frequency. These entities can be created either consciously or unconsciously, take on a physical form and exert an enormous degree of control over the human race. This is an important book because it explains in accessible terms the anomalous behavior that we witness in pop culture, media, and politics. Egregores can be constructive or destructive depending on the intention that forms them. As the story of Pandora teaches us, once these supernatural forces are brought into the world, they may be difficult to get back into the box. Once again, this is episode 92 of The Metaphysical Connection with special guest Mark Stavich, author of Egregores, The Occult Entities That Watch Over Human Destiny. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Let's get to the beginning by introducing our special guest. Mark, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, uh, about your book. Well, uh, I am the uh, founder and director of studies of the Institute for Hermetic Studies. Folks can find us online at hermeticinstitute.org. I've written close to 30 uh, books and monographs on various aspects of uh, esotericism. Uh, we have probably half a dozen of those or so are in uh, half a dozen different languages, and they use standard ones, French, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, we even have Russian, Polish, Estonian, so uh, pretty well established in, in that domain. And I uh, grew up in an environment that was rich with esoteric lore going back to Central Europe, uh, and I've been involved in a variety of esoteric movements uh, my whole life. So the book that I wrote is called Egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny. And uh, the book is about those kind of collective forces or entities that we encounter in daily life. And an egregore is a social control mechanism, and we have to think of them that way. They exist on a variety of levels. Uh, anytime you join a club or a group, you uh, agree to participate in the rules of that group. Those are often written or spoken. That's a control mechanism. But sometimes you join a group or unintentionally join one, and the rules are unspoken, but it's still there. And we have two ways of forming these egregores. One is completely by accident. They just happen. Whenever we put any group of people together, whether it's three people or 300 people for any period of time, they establish certain norms. The other way is intentional, where we just happen to create, we desire to create it. Now, that's where we can create these social norms, again, intentionally, or we move into the esoteric or occult aspects of what an egregore is. 
And that is where we look at the classical meaning, where there's us on terra firma, and there is another intelligence in the invisible that we are connected to in some fashion, and we have a relationship with that invisible being. And that's where we get into the esoteric or occult aspects of egregores, particularly with regards to religion, esoteric and initiatic movements, and even politics. So I guess that the most obvious question is right now, is this a phenomenon that we're actually experiencing uh, in the here and now with the political environment that we are uh, sort of like plowing through or... Or, or what's the story? Does this does this directly affect us, like right now? And are we creating egregores right now? Just the three of us talking online. Well, it affects us all the time because they're always there. We're always moving in and out of different social constructs. So yes, we're always experiencing the varying degrees. Um, are we creating one right now? I would say yes, but a very weak one. Uh, a more uh, more better example might be the branding that mark and marketing that an organization or even uh, a broadcast like yours might do uh, to establish itself for the long term. That would be a form of an egregore. But it would really be the first kind that I talked about that really doesn't have much to do with the esoteric implications. It just has to do with general psychology, uh, general marketing, all these things which are very important. Remember, they're not separated from occult practices. They're an expression of them. People make that mistake. They think they're separate from them, and they're not. But when we talk about egregores in the occult sense, again, we're looking at, well, what is, is there something else out there? Is there something else in the universe, in the invisible, that we are connected to consciously or unconsciously? So, Mark, we, uh, we've spoken many times about phenomenon that take pl- takes place and um, how, does, how do these kind of things happen? And, and why I think your book is, is so important and, and why it was kind of a re- revelation for me. Um, the first thing I want to say is this is a topic that, um, you know, I, I had really not heard of. And, and Eric and I, I, I mean, I've been studying, you know, metaphysical and paranormal type topics for most of my life. Um, and this is something that was really new to me and, and fresh. And, and the reason why I think it's so important is, is that it really explains or gives, um, gives you a clearer picture of, of what's going on with some of these type of things, that, you know, both social, socially, politically, religiously. How, how is this power structure formed? Um, you know, Eric and I have talked um, at almost at length, very much at length about how some of these social mores get formed, like why are there so many people watching seemingly inane shows on TV? Um, you know, say, I don't want to pick on any one particular show, but something like Dancing with the Stars or something that, that does not seem to have much, um, <clears throat> you know, much value to it, I guess you could say. And that's probably a value judgment on my part. But, um, but, but this really clearly shows how these things get started and why people get attracted to them. And, and, and so, I, so I guess my, my question here is, is that um, – does the number of or, or the number of people that are attracted to a particular topic does that give more strength to that particular egregore? Does you know does does and and does that actually lead to a physical presence? Um, I, know, I know I said a lot there, but um, wh- wh- what's your response well, to that? 
well, you were always familiar with the notion of an egregore. You just never had a name for it. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when people read it. I mean, they've heard about the general idea. Uh, the whole notion of when you go to work somewhere, you have a corporate climate. Okay, That's an egregore. It's a social control mechanism. Mm-hmm. We don't think of it that way. We think of mar- or marketing and branding. We don't think of those as an egregore, but they are. Now, when we get into identification, that's when we're talking about the more esoteric aspect where we say, I am blank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story goes that you know Moses you know, heard the voice of God and he said, who are you? And the voice came back, I am that I am. And I'm sure Moses felt that that would really clarify things a lot. So we find in hypnosis or any kind of occult practices or esoteric practices or even psychological practices, we always try to find out what is the person I identify with. When they say I am, what do they fill in the blank with? And that's how you, through that identification, the person becomes part of or identifies with a larger group or a phenomenon of some kind. So we so, have to, that's so where we look at religion. You know, I am, I am Catholic, I am Muslim, I am Tibetan Buddhist, or I am, you know, filling your political aspect of choice. That's really important, okay, to, to grasp that. That is all about identification on some level. Now, in those, people often identify consciously. They have to make that choice, particularly if they're a convert. But people often grow up in an environment where the it's a cultural phenomenon, so they just identify naturally with it. So when we're looking at uh, this notion of phenomenology, of how does this then produce something, the nature, the, the answer to the question is, is yes. Okay, the more people that are involved, the stronger it becomes, because instead of one person giving 100% of the juice, you have uh, a 1,000 people giving whatever, a tenth percent each of the juice. Do you understand? So each person gives a little, but they may not know it, and some give more. Now, that's okay, okay, because egregores can be beneficial to us. You know, we join a, a group, a club, we go to college, we, we pick a major, uh, an area of study. Uh, we have, uh, as, you know, aspirations. We work for companies or for our own, or our own businesses, we have to uh, put a great deal of energy into that, that emotional energy to make things happen. So egregores aren't necessarily always negative. I mean, that needs to be understood. But from our context on this show, what we're looking at is where do they affect us invisibly? So to answer the question about phenomena, you know, how is it that we have, on, as, as the famous line goes, on any given Sunday, you know, for the next, what is it, 15 weeks or so, you know, how many millions or tens of millions of people are going to be enraptured in the religion of football? I mean, think about it. I mean, football is such a massive religion in our country that here in Pennsylvania, Penn State even says, if God isn't a Penn State fan, why is the sky blue and white? <laughs> that is, that, but I mean, here's the thing is, is that you have put a name to something, a phenomenon that I have been talking about for ages, whereas there is, and I think even George Orwell had something to the extent of the group think, where everybody who belongs to the group has to think a specific way. Here is the, here is our foundational truth. This is what we all believe. And if uh, one member of the herd or the tribe is being attacked, then we all join in together to protect this member of of the tribe. Unless they're weak, unless they're weak and vulnerable and they're bringing us down, then we sort of like send them off to the woods or the, or the wolves, as it were. Um, 
is this also something that you're you're talking about as well as in the the collective unconscious is what i think that walt and i uh called it yesterday when we were doing our our pre-show chat right and that's what it is so we're all familiar with this you've all experienced it but it's like anything else until it has a name we don't really grasp it we can't really separate it out now you hear a lot of talk about you know do the ancients really see colors well they did they just didn't process it the way we do so if you look at the ancient descriptions of something, it'll describe something as looking like the sky or looking like a rose or looking like you know, the, the, color, the, the color of leaves. So they're describing it in terms of their experience to the natural environment. They're not saying green like a leaf or red like a rose. That happens later. We see that movement into color spectrum later. It's not like their eyes were deficient. It's just the, the words weren't there yet. You know, it's at some point orange becomes its own color. You know? And then we think of orange all the time. But there's a time when it wasn't. It was part of a spectrum. Okay, So that collective uh, the thing, these exist all the time. What I'm saying in the book is we need to recognize that they exist, recognize their impact on us, and make a conscious decision about whether we want to participate in these egregores or not. Because you're, you're in the sea. You're in the ocean. And there's dolphins there, and there's sharks there, and a whole bunch of other critters, too. You've got to figure out uh, who you want to swim with, because sharks will eat you. And there does seem to be the negative aspect of the egregores, whereas everybody goes along with this thing, and everybody agrees that this is the thing that we have to do. But sometimes that thing that we have to do is bad it's wrong and it was and then there's a moment of reckoning after this bad thing is done and we've had to reconcile with what it is that has happened um and it was just like how, how did this happen how did we get how do we get swept up in the moment and it's like can we look at egregores and say we got swept in the moment because of the egregore that we as a society or group had created well, remember, identification is the key. I identify with this. I am this. And so you look at the folks who uh, sat in the you know, Democratic National Committee and decided to defraud their voters of votes. No, go- what, was the, what was the motivation for that? You know, what was the ultimate thing they were identifying with? What was the ultimate motivation? And it was more than just power, because power is one thing. But there has to be a some kind of philosophical justification that they tell themselves, okay? Uh, you look at the current problems in the Roman Catholic Church. Again, here in Pennsylvania, um, I was here and, you know, I read that report the day it came out. I looked for names for people to see that I may have worked with or sat in meetings with, okay? And I saw them, okay? And um, you look at that and you say, how is it that people can cover this over for so many decades? But also the question, why bring it out now, too? That, that's another question. But the point is, how can you continue to cover this over for decades, and now not just on a, on a state level, but we see on a national and an international level? It's because the entity becomes an end in and of itself. The defense and the preservation of the entity, of the church, takes on all importance. You see that Mark, in, in any group. Um, well, I wanted to ask you, Mark, about, um, <clears throat> pretty clearly to me anyway, the, the, the fascism movement, the Nazi movement in Germany was, was in and itself an egregore um, and, a, and a very powerful one, obviously. So um, 
was Hitler was would you classify Hitler and his ilk as as the egregore or would the movement itself be the egregore and was he just kind of the focal point for that and and do you need a focal point for any kind of a huge movement like that um, you yeah, know he, he pulled off life. the um, the fire at the at the Reichstag to, to kind of focus as a, like a focusing event to get all these people up in arms about this you know group that he was trying to portray as as evil or bad. Um, <clears throat> so I guess my question is, does does a real big movement like that need a focal point? And and was actually Hitler an egregore, or was he just the the front man for it? Well, you need a focal <clears throat> point for everything in life. That's the reality, mm-hmm. and we, you need a limitation. And that's when I say, you know, limitations aren't bad. They just are reality of life. You know, that limitation that is my fence line or my wall or my roof or that right. limitation that says, you know, if you want to graduate on time, you can't take that extra class. Okay, so these are the, the limitations that we, you have, we accept that as reality. And again, a social control mechanism is a limitation. So let's keep that in mind. As far as National Socialism goes, you know, the question is, uh, it, it has a powerful egregore. Uh, the question is, uh, did that egregore exist on some level and then just take up form, uh, take up residence in, in the vehicle that was provided for it in the form of uh, Adolf Hitler, in the person of Adolf Hitler, and then in the person in the form of, of, of the Nazi party and, and what happened? Uh, it's probably a little bit of both. You know, there, there's always something out there, but you got to give it the right structure, and it had the right structure in the right time. Uh, timing for these things in many ways is everything. Uh, you know, and, and one of the errors always when we talk about National Socialism is to forget that it didn't exist in a vacuum. And unless we put it in context of it was a reaction or a response to the Bolshevik Revolution and the collapse of the central power in Germany, that is the central authority, okay? Most people don't understand what, was, what Germany was like in the 20s. I mean, it was it was not a good place to be, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so with the, the collapse of central authority, uh, near constant warfare on the eastern frontier, uh, the loss of properties and lands, occupation, crippling debt, coupled with the insult of, uh, you know, the necessity of assuming war guilt, all of this gives rise or fodder for something to take place. And, of course, if it wasn't national socialism, it was going to be another form of uh, another kind of movement like that. Uh, if we look to the East and we look uh, at, at communism and the Bolshevik Revolution, there you see another egregore, okay? And, of course, that one has managed to survive far longer. In fact, it's even more insidious, because it survived longer, people keep forgetting about it. So I guess my, my second question around that is, do, do egregores form um, in response to another egregore? Um, for example, did the allies form an egregore to, to kind of counteract the, the national socialism egregore? Is, it, is that something that happens, or is, is it is it more than just a response to They could also to, just to rolled over and died, too, but they chose not to. So mm-hmm. it, it can form in that response. Remember, the individuals have to who decide that they want to uh, cooperate together and be part of this, this greater mission. And, or, you know, and that's, that's always missionary, by the way, these things in some way. So you, you have someone in the person of uh, not only Churchill at that time, you know, motivating uh, the British for the, you know, the, the, the continuation of the war effort when it looks like everything was lost. But more importantly, in terms of you want to talk about the focal point of the egregore itself of the Allies, 
that was in the person of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Because mm-hmm. he was the one who was the actual focal point of the Allies. Yeah, the politicians did their thing, but he was the one that kept everything together and moving. And people don't understand that. They I, often miss that unless they're historians. So just because we, we, we see the, some of the players, we don't always know who is the, the main focal point. But in Egregore, what if we look at the Allies and we, we look at National Socialism, look at communism, you know, remember communism was, was, was a terrible thing. It still is, you know, and, and yet we were allied with it. Why? To defeat these other enemies, the Axis. Uh, it gets pretty muddy. It's not clear cut who's good and bad. I think one of the things that I was thinking about, it's funny how I was actually thinking about the whole notion of National Socialism and the Nazi Party this morning when I sort of like had this sort of notion. Um, if it wasn't Adolf Hitler, it would have been somebody else. Is that something that, that you agree with? And you, it was the eager gore that chose somebody. And if, if it wasn't this kid, it would have been somebody else. Well, I, I have to. You have to be careful there because the the situation in Europe at that time is what we have to look at first and foremost. The situation would have given rise to was giving rise to a variety of authoritarian figures. Some of them better than others, I mean less despotic than others. But in terms of you know how they related to you know each other, how they related to national interests, how they related to even a variety of the groups that I'm familiar with, like secret societies. It's very interesting. Uh, how they would often suppress a lot of these. Okay, Freemasonry was widely suppressed across Eastern and Central Europe uh, at that time. So um, something would have arisen. It's just a matter of how strong and how powerful it would have been, and in the form of what person, what direction it would have taken. I think my point is is that the situation in in Central Europe at that time was so terrible. That's the only way it could give rise to these terrible forces and give them embodiment. You need to understand that. They wouldn't. They would so, not have. Otherwise, there would have been no willing receptacle for them. Go ahead, Walter. So, so, so Mark, um, just to kind of clarify things in my mind, anyway. Um, so, are are these entities, these egregores, are they sort of existing in another realm, and and they have some way of kind of observing our existence or our, our you know, what we see as reality or our three D reality, and and they look for an opening, say. Um, you know, are are they are, are they parasitic? Do do they are they always looking for an opening to 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 get into this realm and and do whatever they're going to do? You know, I, I guess it can be either ne- you know positive or negative. But or are they just? Um, I guess I guess spiritual entities that are that are just there waiting for an opportunity to to enter and impact us in some way. All we need to do is look at mythology for that. You know, the gods are on Mount Olympus. Mm-hmm. You know the gods are up on Mount Maru. You know the, you know the demons are always trying to break free of the crypt. You know the cage, whatever it is, something to break out. And we have a variety of mythologies that that give us some ideas to what the relationship between the visible and the invisible is. And you have some wonderfully, powerfully good things there too. But at the same time, the the god, you know, the gods, the enlightened beings, are going to call them, can often be indifferent. And very often, when we look at the encounters, they're often very indifferent to humanity, even when trying to help us. Uh, they seem to have their own agendas. Uh, one need only look at the, you know, enlightenment of the Buddha. Uh, Shakyamuni gets enlightened, and he's like, okay, this is cool. He didn't want to teach anybody. So the mythology goes that he was begged by the Indian gods to come teach them, and that's when you have the second turning of the, of the wheel of the Dharma. And he didn't. You, know, you you have histories, uh, in, at least in the mythic uh, hi- histories of Buddhism and other uh, 
Asian uh, religions of you know, the gods or the enlightened beings saying, well, there's no one who can understand what I'm teaching. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to do it. You want to go do it? You go do it. But I'm, I'm not up for it right now. And we see the rejection of prophets all the time. So uh, I think we have to look at these beings as uh, a spectrum, across the spectrum, you know, not just all good and what we think of as good, okay, or all evil and what we think of as evil. Uh, it's and, and they're, they're a spectrum of these, and, and some of them are very parasitic. That's the nature of the egregores that we're talking about in the book. Uh, and they're very opportunistic, you know? but also we have to be open to it. We have to somehow uh, participate actively in, in their involvement in our lives, particularly religion or uh, politics, which is where we get so much emotional juice going, because the emotions are what feed them. That's what feeds the egregore emotions, energy. That's what does it. That brings to light a phenomenon that I have witnessed. And I was shocked to go back and read some of the articles that I wrote on my own website about how I was concerned eight years ago about the rhetoric that's being ratcheted up and the, the whole us against them sort of violent vitriol that is that is going on. And it now it's to the point where people that I have, I thought that would never advocate for a preemptive strike of violence against the other side is now becoming more and more commonplace, like with like the uh, um, movement to, quote, punch a fascist, unquote. And it was like, it's okay to go up to somebody who you don't agree with politically and just punch them in the face. People that I thought would never the last people in the world I, I would ever assume would say something like that are now saying that. And it's like, are, is this a sign of the, uh, of the social political egregore growing and, and feasting off of this negative energy? And is that the cause of what we're seeing? Sure. And all people have to do is say no. I mean, you know... <laughs> I mean, that's the reality. I mean, you know, Nancy Reagan got thrashed for that just say no, but that's where it starts. <laughs> it doesn't start if you're saying yes. It starts when you say no. You know, and, and, uh, you know, and that's as a addictions counselor. That's the first thing you have to get people to do. you got to stop. you got to say no. We can't go any further if you're going to continue to abuse. You know? yeah, and also... Same, same thing with this. I mean, it's, well, you have to just say, no, I'm not going to participate in this and walk away. But the problem is you identify with it so much, or you hope you can change it so much, or you have so many family and friends who are invested in it, and so much energy that walking away and stripping yourself of the uniform, and I mean both the physical and the emotional uniform, you know, getting the bumper sticker off your car and the, the pins off your jacket or the, you know, whatever, you know, the, the photographs of yourself at some rally or some other stuff off the wall and getting rid of those identifiers and really getting your own life is very difficult for people because these movements prosper in an environment of both despair and opulence. You need people to feel or believe rightly or wrongly that they've run out of options. And yet at the same time, you need people who have enough resources that can fuel the movements. So you need, you know, opulence there too. People need to feel that they are going to a higher calling. That's why we see the notion of, you know, missionary religions are so problematic or missionary movements, whether it's UFO cults or uh, the secret or, or something else. 
but at the same time, the same missionary vision we see in terms of we're going to fix the world. The world is wrong, and we're going to fix it. Good luck with that. <laughs> but, but that's what we're seeing. That's the underlying notion. And that's why political correctness is, is evil. It's probably the most dangerous egregore that we face today because it forces self-censorship. It forces uh, neuroses. It forces people not to actually talk or be civil, even though it claims otherwise, because it denies reality. And um, the whole notion is, if you're not for us, you're against us. Yeah, I've noticed that with a lot of the things that I've been doing, I've noticed that I've been self-censoring myself a lot more. I've actually looked and see that I am publishing less and less because I, I know that there's going to be a backlash, I, just as I know that there's going to be a backlash against the show, but it still needs to be heard. And you do see when people identify themselves as blank, even within, even within the, the paranormal community, you can actually see a schism between people who believe UFOs are this or that. And you can see arguments already start to form where there are these like these battle lines being drawn. And it was like what you're saying is that this is something's well, that's, feeding that's off the of that. Important part. You bring up the paranormal community or UFO community. And, you know, for 50 years now, uh, we've had the writings of John Keel on this, whether it be his UFOs Trojan horse book, whether it be his Our Haunted Planet or, or some of the other things. And we have the writings of uh, Jacques Vallée, who is also deeply involved in French esotericism, okay? And um, the whole idea that you see is, is that the UFO agenda, with the exception of those who are continually dribbling and drabbling out disinformation at it, has not advanced since the 1970s. It hasn't. Either has paranormal research. Sure, I can go on my TV and get 20 different paranormal ghost-busting shows that just suck time and energy and into the egregore, into the myth, into the, into the uh, abyss of ghost-hunting and the paranormal phenomenon, okay? But nothing comes of it, because each of these groups acts as an echo chamber thinking it has a lock on reality. Now, reality is, these things aren't from another planet, <laughs> okay? Yeah. Get over it. And they're not the technology. Anything that you think is a technology doesn't necessarily mean it's from another planet. And that's because the whole entire UFO community is completely disconnected from classical occultism, completely. So they don't understand what's going on. And on the other hand, the, classic, the occult communities, for the most part, and, and some of them are very good, a lot of them aren't, there's a lot of problems there, there's not a good communication with, you know, the paranormal phenomena, with who people are actually doing legitimate research in paranormal research or ESP or the psychic phenomena, which is pretty much dead in the country now. I was talking to, uh, you know, George Hansen about this recently, you know, the author of The Trickster and the Paranormal. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, what is the state of psychic research in the country right now? And it's, it's, it's you say, well, except for, except for the, you know, whoever, whoever in the government that's hiring, it's dead in the water, you know, in terms of funding. So these groups exist, again, as you can see them, they have certain types, personality types that go to them. They have certain dogmas that they exist, but those are just little echo chambers that keep them from actually understanding reality, while at the same time thinking they've got a lock on it. So a lot of the writing that I've been doing recently as a response to the book Egregores is to help show where these groups have to start, or at least individuals have to start looking at all of this information and trying to understand it, but still not get stuck in it, 
not get sucked into it because it's a trap. Paranormal research is just an abyss. It's a trap. It, it gives you it gives you no answers. Same with UFOs. It gives you no answers. Now watch that recent documentary. Was it in Search of the Skinwalker? Yes. You know, I paid my twelve ninety five for it. Yep. Terribly disappointing. Didn't it? there was nothing new in the documentary? It was just old stuff. And at the same time, at, at the end of the interview, he said, "You know, if you're looking for answers, you're not going to find it." <laughs> That's important to grasp because these are not spiritual paths. The people involved in these are not spiritual paths. So the, their relationship is always in terms of me as a human being here on terra firma, not me as an individual in this spiritual spectrum or in this you know metaphysical universe. They, they're trapped in what we call in, in Kabbalah, they're trapped in Yasod. You know, they're trapped in this astral vision or what the old spiritualists used to call the lower astral. And not, not to be derogatory in that sense, but, but it's true. You know, so without a real spiritual discipline, to go into these studies, you're just you're just courting disaster at, at worst, and and you know disappointment and a waste of time at best. That's why I have a bit of a spear point for all these paranormal shows that we see. On one hand, it's interesting to encourage this, these ideas of the psychic, but they don't give anyone any anything useful. They're just a distraction and a waste of time, and, and that's what a lot of these these egregores do. They just distract you from really coming to understand what is the nature of life. What is my life about? Who am I and what am I doing with my life and being responsible for it? I, I was wondering if Mark could explain uh, to our listeners what the occult really means, because I think a lot of people have sort of a negative um, <clears throat> viewpoint of that or, or what it really is. You know, a lot of people equate that with, you know, all kinds of crazy things like black witchcraft and, and those and, and kinds for, of things. And for good um, reason. I mean, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff because it's an umbrella term. But it means yeah, that which yeah. is hidden. And when I use it, I'm specifically referring to the studies mm -hmm. of alchemy, uh, the study of consciousness and matter and how they interact. I'm referring to the studies of symbolism, particularly Kabbalah, but also general ritual magic or the understanding of symbols in consciousness and how they relate to matter. And the study of cycles in consciousness and matter, or astrology. Those are what I'm particularly referencing. But those three ideas take shape in a variety and myriad of forms of different orders, societies, groups, traditions. Uh, you know, so that's what I mean. But anything that has to do with an inner study of my consciousness, and then how does that relate to, again, how does that relate to matter? How does that relate to the cycles? How does that relate to just even ideas? And how, what is that feedback loops that we develop? That's what occultism really is. One of the things that I, I'm going to ask you for my own personal um, needs or, or gratifications is people who, like myself and Walt who study the, the paranormal, we turn on the microphone and we allow people to come on and talk about whatever it is that, that they're into or the, what they've written or what, they're, what they want to share. That, that's our goal just to let everybody have a platform to say whatever it is. But what do you think that we should be doing when we're studying the paranormal? Is it just looking at a higher level of the meaning of life, our own personal lives, or is there, is there something else that we're missing? Well, you have to have a context to fit it into. That's why you see most people who have the study of the paranormal that we see on these ghost-busting shows and elsewhere that you may meet their context is very narrow and limited. It's just kind of a variation of, you know, dualistic Roman Catholicism. You know, everything they encounter is either good or evil, an angel, a demon, or a dead person. They, their views are woefully human-centric. Uh, they, they think only in terms of 
human interaction on some level. And that's understandable because that's how most people go through their lives. They give some tacit thought to animals, either the animals they like or the animals they eat. But that's about it. And, you know, as far as human beings go, they, they certainly hope there's ghosts because they hope there's some kind of afterlife survival in some form. Maybe they believe in reincarnation or they don't. But when I talk to them, I don't see a high level of sophistication of actual understanding of any of the classical methods of spiritual practice and development. You know, we don't see, I don't see a lot of meditation. I don't see a lot of uh, understanding of prayer and ritual. I don't see a lot of understanding of, of dedication to, to a path. It's just, I want to have experiences that are different from the physical world. So I'm going to explore these avenues of possibly encountering it. You know, that's like walking into a jungle without a map or a compass and, and wondering why you get eaten by t- lions and tigers, you know, or get lost because you don't have a guide. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying not to do this. I'm just saying you have to put it in the broader context of your spiritual practice. You know, what is your spiritual practice? What do you, what do you expect from that practice? Cause for and then me, how does this fit into it? Because for me, in the occasions that I have gone with ghost hunters as a, as a part of the show, for me, myself, I, I want a confirmation that there is something, I, such as an afterlife. I would like confirmation from myself that there is something like there are ghosts. I'd like to see evidence of that. Um, I would, and this is one of the reasons why we do the show is, is that I want there to be some more proof to something that I instinctually believe exists. And I do see so many people who get into ghost hunting because they see it on TV and it looks cool. It looks like fun. And like, they just want to, they did they, all they want is just to say is that they saw a ghost or they experienced something spooky. And I guess that you and I are both in the agreement that there are kind of two types of paranormal investigations. There are the people who are just like, I want this, I'm into this, this is fun, this is a cool thing to do for the night, while other people are looking for a greater sense of reality, or what is the rest of the universe made of, is what I guess what you're saying. Well, a lot of these people are idiots. Okay. And, uh, you know, because they, they don't understand. And I use that term very strongly to get so that people are now going to pay attention. You know, the hermetic axiom is as above, so below. As below, so above. Well, if you want to feel something adventurous or spooky, again, adrenaline rush, go walk down an alleyway, you know, at 3 a.m. You know, go to some crappy part of town, you know, do that. You want an adrenaline rush and you want it to be safe, go to an amusement park. But to believe that you're going to go into someone else's environment, which is what you're doing, and that you're going to be greeted well and treated well, and that it's going to be safe is stupid because there's no reason to believe that. There's no basis for it. We have ample amount of evidence to suggest all, you know, uh, quite to the contrary. You know, particularly if the phenomena that has been reported that has attracted you to that location is disturbing and violent. <laughs> so you you would say I mean, that the, the lack of common sense that's involved in this is stunning. Why? Because the emotional drive for the adventure, the emotional drive for the experience, overwhelms the reasoning process, and that's what egregorists count on. That's what marketing counts on. That's what political slogans count on. Mark, I, I think the the overriding notion here is that <clears throat> people are generally looking to fill some kind of a void whether whether it's through religion or you know what 
TV shows they watch or what kind of movements they get involved with, such as cults and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, and, and I, I think that seems like that's what the egregores sort of count on. You know, that's, that's kind of where they get their, their foothold when people yep. have some absence of something in their in their Very life much. that they're looking to fill. And, and you make that point pretty clearly in the book that everybody's kind of responsible for their own spirituality, I guess you could say. And, and you, you yes. use the term uh, spiritual hygiene, which, which mm-hmm. I think is a really good point. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, this is what I'm, you know, and, and not to, to be too hard on folks. I mean, really, I want them to study and explore the paranormal, but I want it to be within the context of a spiritual practice. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I want it to be understood that way, you know, because otherwise they're not exhibiting good hygiene. And that's cleanliness. You know, if you look at the traditions, there's a lot that's said about, you know, spiritual purification. And, you know, just rubbing some smudge stick in the air isn't going to do it. Okay. That's not it. That's not enough, okay, especially if you've really had an encounter with the liminal. You know, traditionally, the liminal was always out on the edges, you know, and when you encountered it, whether you saw something or had, there was ritual purifications that took place, okay, and that's really, literally a cleansing of the pneumatic body or the astral or airy body, the energetic body, because that's how you encounter it. You don't encounter it physically. I mean, if it's by the time you do, you're really in trouble. But you encounter it, for the most part, initially, energetically. Well, where is that energy? How is that entering into your mind? How are you becoming aware of it? You know, through the astral or etheric bodies, as we often refer to it, but essentially energetically. So now if you've encountered that and it's toxic, you know, you need to purify that. You need to clean, cleanse it. You need to get rid of it. Now, that's why when you look at it, uh, whether magical Taoism, uh, Indian Tantras, or Tibetan Tantras, okay, there's an extensive amount of ritual purification that goes on in meditative work along those lines. If you look at ritual magic, you know, in Kabbalah, there's extensive amounts of rules regarding purification, you know, ritual purity, you know, and it's not just an, an old holdover. It has to do with the energetic qualities of the person, the energetic qualities of the environment, and how they combine into these experiences so that you can have only experiences that are healthy and productive for you and not unproductive or, or, or destructive or out of your control. So that's so, hygiene. You know, so, you've got yeah, to have that, these rituals of purification. So if you don't have if you don't have a good understanding of whether it's you know like the the pranayama so the, of India of Indian yogas or like the purification practices of the Tibetan yogas or or Nikung of, of you know Taoism uh, or or other practices in, in Western occultism, you know don't be surprised when you look around at all these people and ask yourself out of all the ghost hunters you've known how many of them have had their lives just fall to crap how many of them how many of them have their lives disintegrate over time or you know get strange and bizarre illnesses a lot that's one of the things that we have talked about in the past where people have gone to have these experiences and come back and they've brought something home i was warned when i went on these two ghost hunting experiences prepare yourself here's what you should do if you if you believe in if you go to church go to church pray for protection you know um like you said practice spiritual hygiene there are a lot of people who think that they can just you know do a couple shots of whiskey and a red bull go in with a camera and they're going to have a grand old time not realizing that something's going to piggyback and come back uh and haunt them and mess up their lives um I had an encounter with um, somebody who had a, a, quote, haunted Ouija board, unquote. And mm-hmm. there was this one room in her house that was uninhabitable. 
because there was something there, something dark. Um, and I and I witnessed firsthand somebody brought in a lamp with a fresh light bulb and a couple of seconds later the light bulb popped well it must be the socket put it in something else in another socket in that room another light bulb burst the room you couldn't get that room warm you couldn't stay in there without the feeling of something like crawling all over your body and and I said, I think maybe you need to get rid of that Ouija board. And she says, no, no, I like it. This is fun. And it was like, that's when you realize you're dealing with somebody who is probably addicted to the negative energy. She's addi- well, they're, they're addicted to being special. You know, their lives are pretty, you know, boring or, or at best, often crappy. And this gives them a sense of specialness and understandable. I get it. We all want to do something special. We all want to do something meaningful. We all want to have an insight into the meaning of the things. That's, you know, that's fine. The question is, how does how is that derived? Is it derived through what we do, through creation, through something positive? Or is it derived through this, you know, perverse identification? And when we have this identification like this, I found it just stunning. It is staggering how many people will put up with negative paranormal phenomena for a decade or more before they finally look for help. I mean, it crushes and destroys their lives. And then finally they go for help. And it's almost too late because they, they, they don't want to get rid of that, which they identify with. You take that away from her, and what has she got in her life? She has a void she has to fill, which is not just that empty room that she can now use, but now she has that void in her purpose or reason for being and why she has friends and why people come over. Now, the problem is with her is, you know, she's already uh, experiencing obsession, okay, these parasitical entity or entities. The question is if and when she gets full-blown possession. That's the only question. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. How, do, how does possession tie in with the concept of the egregores? Is that is that a related phenomenon? Or um, we, we've, we've, we've talked on previous shows about a, an entity called archons. Um, and I don't think you mentioned them in the book, but I somehow think that they may be a related phenomenon. And they're... They're beings um, that are predatory or parasitic at the very least that dwell on, you know, that prey on people's fear and actually feed off well, of it. Well, I didn't um, want are to these things all related you know, to, to agrivores in some way? In the book. So I, I didn't want to go down that road because there's a variety of notions of what archons are with different Gnostic traditions. Mm-hmm. However, it is important to note that there's just this notion out there of different entities that we encounter. Now, how does possession work? Is it related to egregores? Not necessarily. Again, the egregore is more of a self-censoring aspect. It's an identifying aspect. I identify mm-hmm. with this, this movement, this cause, this, this culture. I identify with these activities so much. And, you know, that these are my family, these are my friends, you know, friends become family kind of idea. Yeah. It just becomes all consuming. You know, it's mission driven. Okay. That's, that's the big thing. It's, it's always, it's almost always big like that. And so, you know, is there necessarily what we call a spiritual force overshadowing maybe the leader or individuals and inspiring them? Well, could be. That's the notion of the egregores we've talked about. And if so, it could be a good way. You know, if, if the leaders are open to, you know, very positive and healthy things, then wonderful, okay? But again, you, you can create this kind of mini-group egregore, if you will, where, you know, you got a half a dozen people who, who identify very strongly with, you know, once they leave their jobs, going out and, and, and searching for ghosts and, and, and demon busting and all that. And that, that's just a quick path to problems. That's right? just an immediate path to problems. 
You know, it, it would actually be better if, you know, they were involved in something far more mundane but productive. Like shipbuilding or bowling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, go bowling. At least, you know, go to yoga classes or something. I don't know, just something healthy for you. Something that clears the mind and not muddies it with, you know, fantasies of, of, uh, of what you may or may not be encountering. Because, again, if it, unless it's plugged into a broader spiritual framework, you don't know what you're encountering and you don't really know how to deal with it. And if it is plugged into a broader spiritual framework, you wouldn't be doing that anyhow. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's a dead end, literally and figuratively. Ghost hunting is a dead end, literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, well, all you have to do is watch those shows, and you can see they, they never really find anything. They, they, you know, they kind yeah. of hook you with it, but at the end of the day, it's never but, really but anything. You, you know, but you get the rush of they're, seeing... They're looking, for, they're looking for some kind of a mythic thing that never actually materializes. You know, that's, that's the whole thing. And it's really a waste of time at the end of the day. That's what I found anyway. You know, it's, but notice when you're there, and this is what I want your listeners to pay attention to, whether it's the ghost mm-hmm. show or it's uh, uh, some other shows that they're compulsive about or, 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 or sports activities. Notice how, how you're pulled right into it and you're drawn into it. And you're kind of in this like mini trance as you're watching it. You're like, okay, is this going to be the one? Is this going to be the time when something actually happens on that green filtered screen that made it worth the last 20 minutes plus the constant repeating in the commercial breaks? Is this going to? No, it's not it. Nothing happens. Hey, the door closed. The door closed. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, transfer that now over to anything else. Um, again, and, and this is not to say that there's anything wrong with sports. You know, when I go to a baseball game on occasion, I really like it. When I go watch hockey, I mean, hockey's great live. It's fantastic, you know, boring on TV, fantastic yeah. in person. I never would have thought it, uh, but that was a perfect example. I remember a friend of mine, it was weather like today, it was nice, he calls me, he says, you want to go to a hockey game? I said, yeah, sure. We had seats, you know, three rows back, right behind the glass, and just as I'm sitting down, you know, some guys, you know, faces plastered up against it. You know? yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is great. <laughs> but, but then I leave, okay, then I go home. Um, and I share that with people to think maybe, hey, that might be a good experience. I've never been to a hockey game before. That could be fun. Or, you know, I've never been to AAA ball before. You know, that could be fun. You know, let's go, you know, good friend. But I don't let it consume or dominate my life. But that's the thing when you are actually there in the stadium or you're in the arena and you catch yourself getting caught up in the moment and saying things that you couldn't possibly imagine saying outside of the arena or when you're not caught up in the moment whereas it's like you know you say things about the the uh, the uh the referee's mother that you would never say to a stranger unless of course you're in traffic and somebody cuts you off that's pretty much the same but it is there is this if you're in a stadium and you're singing along with a band like everybody else's. That's a that's a moment. That's a movement almost. It's a, it's a spiritual communal event that fills people up. I know that there are some people who used to follow the Grateful Dead, or now they follow Dave Matthews or Jimmy Buffett, and that's what they identify with. And they get in the stadium, and they get in the moment, and they want that 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 adrenaline rush again and they'll 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 follow these people to the ends of the earth going to their concerts and um well that's their whole identifier and and you see the same thing again in in religious movements you see them in a variety of self-help movements 
Um, you know, you look at the way uh, Tony Robbins has constantly reinvented himself over the decades, and you look at, say, his documentary or approved documentary on, on Netflix called I Am Not Your Guru, and look at, uh, you know, the, the documentary on Rajneesh, Rajneesh Puram. Yes. Uh, wild Country. Yeah, Wild Wild and, Country. Yeah, you know, look at these two. And these are important to watch because, um, you know, I like Tony Robbins and NLP is great stuff. Uh, however, it's fundamentally boring. And if you look at the way he sells it, he sells it as, you know, it's the cult of personality and the rock concert. You know, you're, the adrenaline's moving. You're getting them psyched up before he even walks on stage. And one of the problems with, you know, movements like his is the follow-up. After people leave and that adrenaline dies down and, you know, it's week two or week three afterwards and, and they're doing their affirmations and maybe or maybe not their life has changed, you know, what do they do? They want to go plug in again. They want yeah. to plug in for the rush again. Um, and, and this is... I'm not going to be too hard on him only because people want the rush. You know, in spirituality, it's constantly bait and switch because the real stuff is actually pretty boring. It's difficult and it's hard. So you, you have to deal with people on the relative level of what they want, what kind of happiness they want, what they want to achieve in order to get them to realize something on the absolute level, some kind of spiritual insight or awakening. But unless you're going to tell them, uh, you know, okay, we're going to help you get the girlfriend, or we're going to help you get the new job, and we're going to help you get happy so that you can have those inner experiences too, uh, it just doesn't work. Because most people, if you tell them the reality that you're going to pretty much have to give up almost everything that you consider a value and for a long period of time and, and strip down to the bare minimum to really see what things are all about, nobody's going to do it. And, it's, if they- and that's how egregors are formed. They're formed by finding out what it is that you, and that's how egregors are formed, that's how con jobs are done, and that's how psychotherapy is done, that's how hypnosis is done, this is how uh, marketing is done. I find out what you love and want and what you fear, and I go from there. Interesting. Fear, fear is a big part of it, um, which, which I thought was kind of interesting that uh, and we don't we try not to get political on the show. But um, the, the new Woodward book that came out on uh, about Trump's White House and, and the goings on and, and he named it fear, which, yeah. which I thought was very interesting because um, <clears throat> a lot of these movements um, are fear based. You know, they're playing on people's fears. And and, and I, I think weaknesses. And, and again, the, the idea that there's a void there that. Um, that when they can make people afraid of something, they can get them swayed in a certain direction. Um, so, you know, I think that's an important concept of, of what, critical. That how these things get rolling. You know? There are a dozen other titles which he could have picked that would have been far better, but he didn't. Either did the publishers. Okay? So that tells you everything. What other titles? In, in what sense? Tells you everything. That's the marketing appeal. Marketing's all about emotions, so that's what they want. Mm-hmm. They want you to be afraid. That's what they want to trigger in you in order to get you to buy that book. Which is why the cover is red. Right. What, yeah, I, think, I, I thought that was an science. interesting title because it, it really does um, convey a very strong emotion to people. Yeah. You know, and, and like you're saying, that's exactly what they're trying to do. It's, it's all about mm-hmm. marketing. And, and that's how we get maneuvered by things. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, it is a very important concept that you bring out in your book. Is that you know we're we're really being maneuvered by these 
these types of things. And Eric and I have done shows about this, you know, how we get maneuvered by the media and um, uh, groups like the Tavistock Institute that really does social engineering to, yeah. to, to get movements going. And um, this is why I, I think our listeners should should go out and get a book because <laughs> it's an important book. It really is. But you get you get manipulated too by all the phenomena. I mean, that's the thing. When people go in ghost busting, they're getting manipulated by that phenomena. They're getting manipulated by that intelligence at the other end. They're not in charge. They're not in control. It is. Right. right. You know, when people go searching for UFOs and all that stuff, and and Keel and Valet were were quite clear on this. It's a manipulation. You, you're getting. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're dealing with. It it manipulates you. All this nonsense about disclosure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Nothing's been changed. Nothing has been disclosed. Because it's really, it's just a social manipulation. Now, to what end? I don't know. I can't tell you. Uh, I mean, I have some ideas, but they're just theories, and in and, and, and that sense, irrelevant. What matters most is don't buy into it. Don't try to figure it out, because you can't. Just ignore it. Don't buy into it. You'll find meaning in your life and purpose in your life. And then these things don't have anything they don't have anywhere to hook into. We are being maneuvered and manipulated to either buy things that they want us to buy, whoever they are. That's up to the listener to decide. But we're also being dragged around by these social political movements. I mean, I'm sure that you you have something to say about what occurred back in 2008, whereas... It was like maybe the second time in my life where I actually saw a political campaign become a pop culture social movement. And and in retrospect, I, I'm wondering if does anybody have any buyer's remorse in, in getting sucked into the political campaign or the presidential campaign back in 2008? Was In retrospect, was there any substance behind that? Or was it... It wasn't just another um, lawyer with delusions of grandeur looking to become the leader leader of the free world, just like the rest of them. I wouldn't say it was a leader with delusions of grandeur. I was saying it would be a one-term uh, senator who was given an opportunity by you know people higher on the payroll on on, on the food chain to uh, be the, uh, the the purported leader of the free world. I mean, when you look at the credentials, you know, I mean, that was the best they could come up with. No. Why? Okay. And I don't want to get into that, but I just want to point that out. When you just look at the resume itself, you know, that's the best we could pick up. No, no. That was there. There are other decisions being made that had to do with, um, again, appeal. Who is your appeal to the audience? Marketing appeal, the feeding the egregores. Okay. So again, um, that happens all the time. There's nothing new about that. And I think that's even more important. It's just more blatant and obvious now because we are inundated by so much media. The problem of the connectivity is that just that, you're connected. And what are you connected to? You know, who's pulling that invisible string? People have to learn to disconnect and deconnect so that they can free up time for their minds free up time for their own thoughts, free up time to understand and sort through that and, and find meaning in their own lives without it being shoveled at them. So the media, uh, the volume of media has made that even even more uh, significant, particularly if we look at entertainment, not just so-called infotainment. Yeah. And most of the most of the stuff out there, the occult blogs are infotainment. Uh, the... You go to Netflix, of course, who was a significant donor to the you know the Obama campaign, 
and of course give the Obamas $50 million to be creative content advisors, uh, but they won't have anything political to say. We're just supposed <laughs> to believe that. Yeah. I mean, just right there, $50 million for what? For what? I mean, that's a large chunk of change. But then look at what is on Netflix all the time. Their primary message is dystopia. Their primary message is dystopia. I'm thinking about this right now, and I'm thinking <laughs> yeah, about... Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, you know, and, and I always find myself asking, when you look at the candidates that are offered up, and, you know, we're supposed to have a democracy and we have choices, but the choices were given. I always ask myself, really? <laughs> is that the best we could do with all the millions of people in this country and potential candidates? Is that really the best we can do? But then you, then you have to look at it realistically and say, well, you know, they go through this gauntlet of some kind and... You know, it's it, it's that in itself is an aggregor, I guess, and and that's what well, you get offered up. You know, right. Well, if, and you, if you look back you to two thousand and two, and you look at there is a documentary out there, if you can find it, with Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader, in which they talk about their experiences as presidential candidates during that election. Yeah, and they and I mean, these are consummate insiders, okay, from the opposite sides of the sector, but consummate insiders. And here, and you know, they're telling you. Uh, the people who pick the candidates, you know, uh, this is a whole different process than what you think, what you're being told in terms of, can of uh, candidate selection. And that was back then. And that's from these guys. I mean, I mean I'd advise anyone who, who wants to go down that road to read some of what, you know, Pat Buchanan's written. He's a wonderful author. And he's a former speechwriter. Uh, and also, uh, uh, you know, Ralph Nader has to say a lot of things, you know, uh, so... But again, not getting caught up in it, but recognizing it for what it is, you say, how do I free myself from this as best as possible? How do I participate and live in a society and have happiness and joy in my life and, and, and have social and religious and spiritual associations in a healthy and balanced way and not be consumed by them? That's the question we're really talking about. And that's the question that I want everyone to ask themselves and read the book and find answers for, for themselves. Because these egregores are not going to go away. I don't see them going. I, I, I actually see the situation getting worse because people are addicted to the adrenaline rush of the controversy and the sensationalism and the infighting. Whereas it's like you have a nephew throwing mashed potatoes at his uncle's face because they don't agree on an ideology and they promised their their friends and their tribes that they're going to start some crap on Thanksgiving Day. I see people who have been lifelong friends and family members parting ways because of of an of a temporary ideology. Like th like this administration like all the others before is going to be over. It's going to be only 4 or 8 years. What happens after this this administration is swept away for the next one? How do you repair the damage done to these relationships because of these pol these political fights and i i i think that there is like some spiritual force out there that's feeding off of this hatred and is somehow egging us on and living off of that negative energy to the point well, it where it, but it's the same way with you know when the pope came out or the bishop came out and said you know the devil's behind all this stuff. And I, I laughed because I said, uh, it's true on one level, but at the same time, uh, just because someone whispers something in your ear doesn't mean you have to do it. 
You know, so uh, just because uh, you know you, the the impulse, the invisible impulse, is there to uh, uh, you know take advantage of teenagers or lost uh, children or some you know or something, doesn't mean you do it. So the spiritual impulses to do good things are always there too. People just do or you know may not listen to them. Um, I think it's very easy to get caught up on the negative because the negative is obvious. It's yeah. disruptive. It's disruptive. It's coarse. It's chaotic. It's in your face. Whereas the good is harmonious and smooth. So we often don't see how much good we have around us at all times. Um, that's the other point about it. When we come to realize the role of the aggregate, the role of the collective, and how daunting it appears, it can be very easy to get paranoid and pessimistic about it. And I, I, I'm saying, no, that's not the point. It's, it's like anything else. Um, you, you have to just recognize it for what it is and then adapt and act appropriately for your own well-being and happiness and freedom, freedom and spiritual awakening. One of the one of the points um, that I came away with after reading your book is that you know the kind of the litmus test for things is uh, can you ask yourself am I am I going to be a better person I'm, am I going to be more spiritually evolved you know from this decision and I think most of these movements and things you you can't you can't answer that in a positive way you know when when you look at that. Um, and I think that's a good way to, to posit things. Is is this going to move you along the line in some sense spiritually? Because I think that's what we're really here for. You know, all this other stuff is just kind of minutia that muddies the waters and, and, and keeps us from really getting to, to where we need to get to. Is that accurate? Is that, you know, is that something well, you're trying it. to get and, to? And that's really a simple question that we need to ask ourselves at all times. Mm-hmm. Um for example, you know, I have a son in college, and he's got assignments to do and work to do, and that's fine. And he needs to, you know, take his relaxation time. You know, you know life's a great burden at that point. And I say, okay, you just have to ask yourself one question. And that's all you have to do. What is my goal in life? What are my goals? How does going to college help me to achieve those goals? And is what I'm doing now helping me to achieve those goals? That's it. And if the answer is yes, then do it. And if the answer is no, don't do it. But if you do, recognize that you're still responsible for the outcomes. And I think that yep. that I think that that is probably one of the most powerful messages that we've had on this podcast in a long time. You know, you have to. It's be, it's, it's it's very simple. It really is very simple. It's not it's not that complicated. It's uh, all the stuff around it is what's you know is where the complication comes in. Um, all the things that sort of divert your attention away from, you know, from from what you said, like your goal, you know, getting to what your goal is and identifying your goal. Um, everything. There's so many diversions out there. And, and I think that's kind of what egregores do is they divert you away from from what the, you know, what the pure message is. Um, exactly. Ahead, Eric, I kind of interrupted they, they, you di- yeah. they divert you to greater or lesser degrees. Sometimes it's not a terrible diversion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll even jokingly refer to it as a, at some times, it's kind of a, a necessary evil, you know, like the bait and switches. Sometimes you have to, it's a long, slow road to get people on the path, okay? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, you know, spiritual, <laughs> spirituality is like legislation and making sausage. You know, <laughs> nobody wants to really see what goes on in the process. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just the end result. So sometimes you gotta, you gotta do a little bit, but does that become your only activity? Does that become so overwhelming that you've forgotten why you began in the first place? 
And I'll ask people, I'll say, you know, why did you become, you know, uh, a, uh, a minister? Why did you become a member of the clergy? And, and almost always anymore, it has nothing to do with God. It has to do with social stuff. So why didn't you become a social worker? You see, that doesn't have the higher calling aspect to it. Yeah. I'll ask people, why did you start this path? Why did you begin to meditate? Or why did you begin to study uh, Wicca? Or why did you begin to study magic or, or, or Tibetan Buddhism or yoga? Okay, have you, have you achieved that? Have you gotten what you were after? Yes, no. Okay, if yes, good. If no, why not? Yeah. Oh, because it was easy to get caught up in the proselytizing. It was easy to get caught up in the the group think. Yeah. And isn't that true of everything? We get caught exactly. up. We get caught up in the the trailer, as it were. We get caught up with the promotion of of something. One of the things I have noticed is that the reason why people buy products is not because they're good products, but because they want to be seen as the kind of person that is associated with this kind of product. You buy a Prius not because you care for the environment so much as you want to be seen as the kind of person who buys a Prius. You buy Apple products because not because they're better than than Windows products, they are not. That's up. That, that's not for me to decide. But you want to be the kind of person who buys Apple products. It's the same. And and Nike even caught, got caught up in this. Is that you? You want to be the kind of person who buys Nike sneakers because you want to be a part of this movement that's of the moment. Um, and I I think that that's that's what we're looking at right now. How how did we get here? I I had a a. a an issue with my own life a couple of years ago, whereas a couple of days after my birthday, I said, how did I become this? How did I become me? How did this become Eric Fisk? And it was, mm-hmm. it was, I mean, it was, and it, it was, it was a really difficult time to sort of digest, to look at myself and say, I became this because of experiences that I went through and the choices that I made. And Eric Fisk is who he is, is because of the choices that I've made. I I have nobody else to blame but myself. Or I, you know, and some of the people that are in my life that I, that I chose to have in my life or the family that I was born into. And um, and I, 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 while doing research for this show, I had sort of like, you are, your personality is in part created by the egregores in your surrounding. Could we make that assumption? Yes, because we, we are we only have our experiences to respond to. So the experiences that we have are what shape our understanding of ourself and our relationship to others. Uh, you know, and of course, geography is the foundation of that. How you relate to uh, existence is first and foremost based upon the physical place you live, and then the cultures that arise within that, and then the relationships that arise around those cultures and the resources that are available to them. You know, this isn't rocket science. Uh, however, as those become embedded over time, they may or may not change. They may or may not adapt well. And they may or may not have, because of whatever resources are available, the ability to be flexible and open to, you know, the role of the individual. We're very fortunate now because we uh, exist in a period of uh, uh, extensive wealth. And that allows us the opportunity to uh, become more individualistic, which has great benefits to it. Uh, but if those benefits are not well used, then it just becomes uh, a wasted opportunity. You know? So, it, Mark, do you, really do you think simple. these egregores exist um, in some sense as a test um, to, to kind of 
you know, to kind of help us maybe in some way move or, or at least make judgments based upon our own sense of right or wrong? Or, you know, do, do you think there's some real substance to, to why these things exist in terms of helping people move along the, the spiritual path? Well, I think that, you know, we have to look at the, the vast possibilities of egregores, the vast arrays mm-hmm. that they're, they're, you know, like giant individuals. So their function or reason for being is going to vary from entity to entity and the groups that exist within it, just like uh, a clan or a tribe or, you know, a, a group is, is going to have different purposes than maybe neighboring ones. Uh, I don't like to say that they exist for a purpose to test us only because that implies a certain knowledge on my part. All I can do is look at what is the actual effect, mm-hmm. not the purpose. And if I look right. at the effect, you know, even the best of egregores is still a social control mechanism, and that exists then to protect us from the more negative influences of other ones. Right. And and that's why many people move from one religion to another. You know, they move in slow doses, you know, from one thing to another until they finally establish their own practice and their own understanding and, and they have a sense of personal freedom. Um, when you look at it that way, it's, it's understandable. You know, when you're in a group, you know, sometimes you need to be part of a group. You know, if, if things are incredibly chaotic, you, you need to have a sense of stability. And that's what, you know, egregores all offer, no matter what they are. Even at Nike, that Nike offers stability. You know, yeah. I, I yeah. purchase, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm socially conscious. I'm cutting edge. I'm hip and future oriented because I drive a, a Prius. Okay, whatever. Um, that's the other thing. They offer stability in an unstable experience, which is the path of awakening is inherently unstable phenomenologically, but it is inherently stable at the root of our being. That's why you're constantly being told to establish and experience experience the root of your being, the root of yourself, the I amness, and that is unchanging. It's everything that we put after that that is changing and unstable, and that's okay. Just understand it as that. What happens is people don't want to accept that. Well, that's you know that's one of the things that comes through very clearly in your book is, and again, your your book is is. Um, very easy to read, for one thing. Very readable. And it doesn't come across as preachy or didactic. It, it comes across as you laying out this topic. And this is, you know, this is what this is. It's a possible explanation for things, but it's not the end-all, the be-all. Because there really is no such thing as that. So, so that's one of the things that I, that I really liked about it. And it, and it will allow people to, to start to, to really kind of question where they are with this, this whole concept. And I think that's a healthy thing for people to question. That's that a lot of times that gets taken that gets subverted by all you know again all these all these things around us. But to me, that's the real power of your book. Um, and and I'm sure that's you know your philosophy comes comes through comes comes through today in in you know how you've been addressing our questions and and um, so that's something real important for for our listeners to to take away from this. I think. Well, thank you very much. And. You know, the book, it wrote itself. You know, I, I don't say that loosely. Uh, mm-hmm. It was very nice when I sat down to write it. Uh, it just happened very easily because, you know, I'd had several conversations with friends about this. And so it was written very conversationally. And then, mm-hmm. Well, it uh, comes through that way. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, and so when it was over, uh, uh, it was like, you know, the popper on the turkey. It's done. Uh, we, we looked at putting some additional information into it. And, you know, we, I have it. And I thought, well, you know, we could have made it bigger. But where would that fit in? And. And some every time I tried to add something in, it just broke the flow. So I said, you know what? Uh, in fact, we had to put chapter markers in because we didn't really have good chapter markers because it just it flowed like a conversation. You know? mm-hmm. 
And there it is. It, 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 it's meant to be what it is, which is something to read, to think about, to get you asking questions about your life, getting good answers and solutions from yourself about your life, and learning how to be happy and healthy and free on your spiritual path. And um, you know, sometimes we shake things up a little bit and have to scare you a little bit to do that, kind of show you where there's a train to get you off the tracks. But that's what it's about. It's about getting off the tracks, not being afraid of the train, and then uh, you know finding your own way. But things are only scary if you don't understand them. And, and this book really helps you, helped me anyway, understand some of these things that I just, I couldn't figure out whether, how, how did that happen, you know? And, and this really helps you make perfect sense out of some things that are seemingly impossible to figure out how, how that could be. But that's the, to me, that's the real important part of this, this whole topic is that it gives you a framework sort of in some sense, you know? It's experiences everyone is having and has had and will continue to have, and that's why it's so subtle. Suddenly, you begin to recognize, wait a minute, that's why this is going on, or that's why I think this way, that's why I do what I do. Exactly. Exactly. uh, So everyone has that. All you do is begin to wake up to it and uh, say, oh, I have choices. I don't have to do that. I think that that's the scariest thing of all is that this is one of those books that answers a lot of those questions that we are all grappling with right now. Whereas, what am I doing? What am I doing in this? Because so many people have complained about living in a house that they hate, driving a car that they hate to get to the job that they hate so they can support the, the house that they hate. I, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people who don't understand why, why are we doing these things that we don't like doing? And then it, it doesn't occur to us until somebody like you comes along with a book and says, I don't have all the answers. I've just been thinking about the questions differently and here are the conclusions that i've come up with and i do think that i i think something's got to change and i think that this could be the first step in a in that change in our society and i i mean i i cannot wait until walt is done and i can read the book or if it's out on if if there's an audible version for it i'll definitely read it you know by the end of this week if i can get a hand on it there is an audio there is an audio version of it but I think I think what it is, you know, people neglect their spirituality, and then they can't figure out why they're coming up short. <laughs> why why does that not, you know, why is that so shallow? Why does that, you know, if I get a new shirt at the mall, say, that's a silly example, but okay, it makes you feel good for maybe ten minutes, but then after the novelty wears off, there's kind of there's a void there yeah and it all comes down to people neglecting their spirituality because that's the only thing that really ever delivers anything i i think anyway well this is the thing when we we have to understand relationships and we have to understand uh potentialities you know the the shirt is wonderful uh you know it, it serves a purpose particularly if you need it for work or for a date or for just you know hanging out it's nice to have new things and that are nice and attractive and that makes us feel good on a relative level, and that's good. Mm-hmm. The problem comes in is when we expect that relativity to translate over into an absolute level to keep us always happy. You can't keep us always happy. Mm-hmm. And that's also, you know, some of maybe the problems, too, is we end that people who get overly spiritual, they can dualistic. They, they think of their spirituality as solving all their problems, and it has the potential to give you a view that will solve all your problems, but you still have to get up off the chair and go fix yourself dinner. I mean, right. There's still relative things that you have to do, you know, in, as long as you're in this world and you still have to relate to other people. So we just have to begin to understand what is the promise? What is delivered? Do they match? Is this helping me? Is this not helping me? 
very simple questions. And again, that's all I want people to do is just, just start asking the questions and each and every one of you will be able to find the answers that are best suited for your path of becoming. I think that that is the perfect place to leave this show unless we have anything else left to say. I think that it's the, it's a, you know, the book is, um, I'm gonna, if I mispronounce this, let me know. Um, Egregores, the occult entities that watch over human destiny, by Mark Stavich, and um, Walt won't shut up about it. <laughs> it's it is it's and and the thing is is that now I can't wait to read it because I I think that this is going to help a lot of people. I I think that it it is is going to be one of those things where it's like it's so great to know that somebody else is asking these questions. It's so wonderful to know that somebody is saying, hey, I, I, here, here's, here are the questions that are plaguing us in our modern society. Hey, I think that here are some answers. Let's see, what, let's see where this goes and, and just go from there. Walt? Uh, well, I just want to thank you, Mark, for, for taking time out of your, out of your busy schedule uh, to join us and to talk about, about the book. And, and I, I don't think there's too many more important things um, that people can delve into because it really, I, I think, helps people um, get a better handle on on how to address the challenges that we all, you know, that we all encounter as human beings, and, and that's really important. And, and that's, you know, it seems like your work has been over the years has been all heading in that direction. And, and I think it's very important work. So, so thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate it very much, and I hope that this is a benefit to uh, your listeners and in uh, improving uh, the quality and experience of their lives. I'm sure it will be. There's no doubt in my mind. Okay. Well, thanks, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And uh, and I just want to just have, leave the invitation open that if you'd ever like to come on the show and talk about any other topic, you're more than welcome to do so. You know how to get in touch with us. And how can people get your book, Mark? Before you before you leave, uh, it's available on Amazon. I know. Uh, Amazon, any, Barnes and Nobles, Inner Traditions is the publisher. It's available off their yes. website, yeah. and any one of your local uh, New Age uh, bookstores or spiritual bookstores will be able to order it for you. Great. And this is also. I'd, I'd like to give a shout out to uh, Manzanita too for um, facilitating the the interview today. She's the publicist for for Inner Traditions, which has a, a really great catalog of books. So. Give them a little plug too while we're at it. <laughs> Doesn't hurt. A little mini uh, egregore for for uh, inner traditions. They've got great stuff, and it's uh, it's wonderful to be part of their uh, their uh, stable of authors, if you will. Yes, it's yes. Uh, it's a great honor to be with them. It is. It is. Okay, Mark. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Welcome to the human race. This has been the Metaphysical Connection podcast from the Fedora Chronicles Network. 
don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. That's also a great way to get in touch with Walt, Jim, and Eric, and let us know what you think of the podcast, as well as topic suggestions for a future show. If we use your suggestion, we'll send you a t-shirt or coffee mug. Just send along your size and preference with your email. You can be a part of the metaphysical connection between shows by joining us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook by going to our metaphysical connection group and following us on Twitter at physics laxative. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes, and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. My house is full of them, yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, and form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. Find his products at www.trinitywhipco.com. So for Walt, Jim, and Eric, this is Carol Fisk thanking you for listening and signing off. Until next time, keep your chin up and your bra, excuse me, fedora on. (laughs) 